Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers, O oh, children of the noble ones. I was reflecting on these feelings of gratitude that are in my heart this evening, have been there a lot this, this week. Um, I don't get to meet with all of you in, in individual meetings, but I, I meet with some of you. And it's a, a real honor and a privilege for me and uh, and this week, it's also been um, not only an honor and a privilege and, and a truly an inspiration for me to meet with you, to talk about your practice and to do what I can to offer some kind of support for that. But it's also been uh, somehow very deeply healing for me. And I, and I mentioned this, I think I reported this perhaps to Andrea, that um, that was my experience. And, uh, and so it's, your practice has been a, a real gift. And I don't know that we often uh, think and feel in this way that we see our practice as a gift. And it's said that the Dhamma, the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all gifts. And this is, this is our gift of our practice, is this beautiful gift. And I think it's possible to actually um, hold it this way in intentionally, actually bring this to mind. One time, one place, one time when this might be uh, something that we could bring to mind, maybe at times when we're uh, when things are difficult, when we're showing up in the best way that we can, we're bringing what we can to a difficult experience. And we can, uh, it's almost like and we bring to mind, I find myself sometimes bringing to mind, let me be with this as a gift to all beings. And especially perhaps to those beings who do not have the strength to bear this kind of thing, who could not be with this. Let me, let, me practice, let me practice for all beings in this direct, simple way. Let me be with this experience for the benefit of all beings. You may be able to find a way that's personally meaningful to, to bring some reflection like this into our heart. Because our practice is never limited to just our own mind and heart. Sometimes it feels that way, I think, when we're, we're so inwardly focused and we're, we're just attending to our own experience and it can feel um, as though somehow it stops there. But that can never possibly be the case. And so to actually... Um, bring this to mind. When I come in and you see we, most of us put our hands, maybe all of us put our hands in this Anjali Mudra, this prayer posture in front of the heart and, and we gesture towards the Buddha Rupa here, the symbol of wakefulness, of wisdom, 
of the truth of things, the truth of nature. And we, we may bow or even bow uh, three times perhaps, which I would do if my knees let me get down. And, and I bring into my mind uh, some reflection like this. May my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. That might sound kind of grand. <laughs> Does that sound too grand? Who do you think you are? That's the voice that used to come into my head. Yeah, right, as if. But even if that voice comes into your mind, <laughs> if you feel inspired to do that, just do it anyway. That's not the voice of wisdom. That's not a voice to, you can say, thank you for your opinion, <laughs> and I'm doing it anyway. It's worth uh, bringing that into your heart, even if uh, you, you question the, the, val- the possibility that that might be true. Just bring it into your mind in some way. Let my practice, let me practice as a gift to all beings. Because it is a gift, whether you feel that way or not. I promise you. And it's been such a direct gift to me this week. And so I really thank you for that. I think any one of us who would choose to come to a retreat like this, to undertake a meditative or spiritual life, whatever form that takes, however that might look in any individual particular case, there's beneath our individual stories, there's this, um, this movement of heart, this desire to be at ease or to be happy or to find some kind of meaning, a deeper kind of meaning, a deeper understanding, contentment, peace. We might use all kinds of words, but there's this uh, movement of the heart and it's usually tied to feelings of, um, some feelings of, dis-ease or dissatisfaction or sense that things are just not quite right. I mean, if we're looking for happiness, there must be a reason why things must not be quite, quite right. So there's a connection to stress or struggle or suffering, something in that terrain in our lives that's, that's part of this movement of our heart. And, and if this, this, uh, however subtle it might be, sense of dissatisfaction or um, questioning the meaning of things. If this is to lead us to a, a genuine search, I think we need to touch the, what I think of as the, both the depth and the breadth of the insecurity that it points to. This, this, um, this kind of, insecurity that underlies what we might think of or call the human condition. So this points to a meaningful relationship to what is called dukkha in Pali, Pali word dukkha. Because this goes to the very heart of what the Buddha taught. It's right there. It's right at the core. And it's crucial to our understanding The Buddha was once quoted 
um, as saying, I teach one thing only, now and before, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Actually, two things, I suppose. But the statement has led to a lot of misunderstanding, kind of given Buddhism a bad rap. It gets shortened to a, Buddhism says life is suffering and sort of stops there. Well, life is suffering, good luck. Well, have a good life. <laughs> good luck with that, or, you know, that something like that. You know, is that, is, is that, that's all that it comes to. And, and yeah, that, the second part, the end of suffering, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> that's probably why we're here, some, some relationship to that possibility. But why teach suffering? Why start there? You know, I mean, life's hard enough sometimes. Why, why point to that? Why is that a beginning point? And I think part of the problem is that this Pali word, dukkha, which is really a very rich word, um, translating that as suffering is, is an inadequate translation of that word. It's the one that's most widely been used. This is from the uh, teacher Tanisaro Bhikkhu Tanjef, he goes by. No single English, English word adequately captures the full depth, range, and subtlety of the crucial Pali term dukkha. Many translations of the word have been used, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and so forth. Each has its own merits in a given context, but there's value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any particular translation of the word, since the entire thrust of Buddhist practice is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. That's a strong statement. The entire thrust of the teaching is broadening and deepening our understanding of this. So it's really, at least in his opinion, really at the heart of things. So what does it mean? What does this, this mean? I mean, as I was saying, it goes to the heart of the teachings because this is, is the core teaching, no matter what tradition, the Four Noble Truths is there at the heart of it. The truth of dukkha, the cause, the cessation, and the path that leads to the ending of suffering, of struggle, of stress. And really, all of our practice is related to this and anything we might say in one of these talks is in some way tied to this understanding, pointing to some aspect of, of this. And we'll talk about it in all kinds of ways. So I'll, I'll speak to, to this a little bit in, from one perspective this evening. So on its most elemental or basic or fundamental or uh, obvious level, dukkha does refer to pain and painful sensations and difficult times and unpleasant feelings in the body and mind. And, and it's directly associated with having a body and the processes of birth and uh, aging and illness and eventually the process of dying and all that comes with having a body. At times, there's unpleasant feelings there. That's just part of the deal. And difficult, stressful mind states that come to all of us at times. And just the fact that sometimes we don't get what we want and a lot of times we get what we don't want. 
Maybe that happens to you sometimes in meditation. <laughs> I'm getting what I don't want here. Anybody ever get what they don't want? In the mind, in the heart, in the body, or, or not get what you do want? I want it to feel really nice and light. I want the mind to be concentrated. It's not always that way. And then there's a, a more subtle understanding of dukkha that has to do with this quality of uh, unreliability or insecurity that I've been touching on and that Tan Jeff spoke to. That's, that's an intrinsic part of all experience, of all life on this plane, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So dukkha applies to pleasant, agreeable, likable experiences also, and it's directly tied to the fact that things are subject to change. So there's an, a kind of a subtle inner anxiety at times because things don't last. Pleasant experiences don't stay pleasant. So this unsatisfactoriness due to, that's a direct uh, result of the fact that things are constantly changing and, and largely out of our direct control. You know, we can add something to the mix, but mostly, mostly it's not, not in, in, in our control. I mean, Bhikkhu Bodhi spoke, speaks about this in this uh, next uh, quotation very directly. Whether in the form of pain, frustration, distress, suffering reveals the basic insecurity of the human condition. It throws before our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulf stretching between our ingrained expectations and the possibilities for their fulfillment in a world never fully susceptible to domination by our will. Kind of wordy, but gets to the point there. You know, because we're conditioned, we have this... um, this ingrained expectation is the words he used, this, this conditioning that we're supposed to be able to get our lives to the point where it is always the way we like it and it's always pleasant. You know, like it should look like a, one of those TV commercials where everyone's so happy and also really good looking. <laughs> you know, and if we're not happy, and good looking too, then somehow it's, it's our fault. And, and so we, we tend to take the truth of dukkha personally as though somehow it's, it's down to us, <laughs> that we're blowing it, somehow our fault. But this is just the nature of things. <laughs> you know, we're gonna get the range of joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain. And it's not that we're completely helpless, that we have nothing to add into uh, life in, in regard to this. We do our best to live well. We live with as much grace and integrity. We live from wisdom and kindness as much as we can. You know, so this isn't a, a, an understanding that leads us to resignation and defeat, a defeated attitude. It's not the attitude, life is suffering, have a good life. Good luck with that. So then the Buddha came to this key understanding when he was exploring this truth of the human condition and trying to come to terms with these kind of fundamental existential questions of birth, 
life, aging, sickness, death. You know, if that's their trajectory, and that is their trajectory, friends, if we take birth, we are heading one way only. How do you make sense of that? I mean, this is what propelled him on his quest, was just coming face to face with, okay, how to, what's it all about then? Trying to understand that. And so he came to this understanding that stress and suffering in our lives related to this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliability, this vulnerability, this fragility. There's a kind of fragility there. Because things are out of our control and constantly changing. That it's born, stress and struggle are largely born in the mind and they result and arise out of our relationship to this truth and to experience. And this attempt to control things so they're only the way we want them to be. And this isn't, not, isn't to deny the very real suffering that exists in the lives of so many and the truths of poverty and injustice and oppression and the deep suffering that so many experience are all too real. And the simple truth is that no matter what, life is hard sometimes and we get sick and we have difficult times. But if we look deeply into this, we'll see that the root of struggle and stress has its genesis in great part in the mind and arises out of our relationship and out of resistance and denial and our misguided attempts to try and control and manipulate things so they're only the way we think they should be. And, you know, when talking about this, I think sometimes, you know, it can sound so kind of obvious. But it really runs counter to the usual way that, that most of us have looked at things most of our lives, that most people look at things, because we're very conditioned to look outside of ourselves, both for the source of our uh, difficulties and struggles and for the solution. But this understanding that the Buddha came to is really, actually, really hopeful. It's really good news. It doesn't sound like good news on the right at first. It might not sound like great news. But it's hopeful because um, if suffering were entirely due to the conditions, then, then the situation would ultimately be hopeless because we don't get control over uh, the conditions in our lives. We can't predict it. We can't control that. And so opening to this, this truth of this unreliability, this uh, vulnerability, this fragility, the unsatisfactoriness, this aspect of dukkha, opening to that with this understanding that suffering and non-suffering in our lives, in our minds, in our heart, results from how we're relating to this, this um, the truth of change and unpredictability, uncontrollability. It, it radically transforms our view, our orientation. And this is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. This is where we have to start. This is why it's seen as so fundamental to our practice. Uh, the 
Thai, great Thai forest master Ajahn Chah spoke about this in terms of two kinds of suffering. He said, there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Because until we open to this truth in a, in a, in a real way, we'll always be looking for a way out. We want to do an end round around it. We want, we want to get out of it somehow. And we'll always be turning to that which by its very nature is inherently unreliable and ultimately incapable of bringing us any kind of lasting happiness. And this is just, will be an endless search and we just will keep spinning on this until we run out of time and energy. And then maybe we'll do it again. And maybe we've been doing it for a long time. And so opening to this truth, actually, um, it, it leads us to um, the possibility that we'll turn to seeking a reliable path. I think that's what's going on in this room for everyone in here, in some way. Since the key to freedom, to um, ease, contentment, peace, can be found within our own heart, our own mind, then there's this possibility that we can learn a new way of relating to our experience, to the truths of change and uncontrollability. And, and find uh, that we can turn towards uh, happiness, a kind of contentment or peace that is um, largely independent of the conditions that, that come in life. That we can find ease and balance right within the truth of change. And so when the Buddha said, I teach only suffering in the end of suffering, he was pointing to uh, the, this key to freedom here. To realize the end of suffering, we have to realize its cause. <coughs> we realize the end of suffering by abandoning the cause. There's a beautiful, uh, What is it? Something that is said, <laughs> a saying, it's an expression of, of, of the heart of compassion. And I think it's from the Tibetan tradition, but m- some of you know that much, much better than I do. But it's, it's, uh, it's a compassion phrase. May all beings be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. It's the the Brahma Viharas are, are seen as the great immeasurables. Something, words to that, these immeasurables, these boundless qualities. There's a beautiful statue at the back of the hall and another one in the upper walking room, two of them. But the one I'm thinking of is the large one um, of uh, Kuan Yin, said to be um, the embodiment of compassion, hears the cries, can hold the suffering of the whole world. Often I, I go in front of that Kuan Yin and I bow there and I, I say this, those words, may all beings be free of suffering, be free of the causes of suffering. That's a beautiful wish. There's a 
an interesting and kind of counterintuitive in a way when we first hear it teaching. Um, and it's said that opening to dukkha, really, really opening to this, is it's seen as as the cause, as a causative factor for the arising of faith, confidence, trust. I'm going to use the word faith for that, the translation of the Pali word sata. It's not it's not the faith that is a belief in in something that may or may not be provable. Hear the word. If you hear me use the word. Uh, faith, think, trust, or confidence. I may weave those three in, using the those three for the same thing. And literally, sata uh, means something like uh, that, the quality, the f- that which supports uh, confidence and trust. So it's directly linked to that, those, those words. And um, Sharon Salzberg is uh, one of the founding teachers of IMS, um, she equates it with a sense of a, a place of safety where you could place your heart safely. Kind of a nice image. You can go to the Kuan Yin and, and place your heart there. It's a safe place. Place your heart in the arms in the, in the arms of compassion. That's a good thing to do. Offer your mind state to Kuan Yin. Rest your heart there, like, like a real refuge, a safe harbor. A sense of, of that to me. It, 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 it touches that quality of a refuge, kind of true refuge, a real refuge, a refuge that's independent of change and, and all of the, all of the things that come and go in a day in a life. So this this possibility of finding a kind of refuge or a place of safety where we can rest our mind and heart. And um, and this can open us to a kind of spaciousness of mind and heart that can really open to hold and be with life's changes. And this inevitable movement from joy to sorrow and from pain, pleasure to pain. And, and we can touch a deep and I think a very radical kind of happiness, a more a quality of contentment than than an exuberant happiness, but a deep contentment that's not easily uh, blown around or buffeted by the winds of change. It's, it's not assailed by that. So what is the link there? Why would opening to dukkha lead, it, lead to the arising of, of faith or confidence or trust? Again, from Ajahn Chah, he speaks, he speaks in such a direct way. I love a lot of his teaching, it's so beautiful. In Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of, in, of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. So this is really a, a shift, a, a different strategy. The suggestion here that rather than struggling and fighting against things, either trying to control that which is never fully susceptible to our will, as Bhikkhu Bodhi said, or, or falling into despair, 
because the road is blocked somehow, that we, we open to the truth of the situation and we start to look for a way through. And so skillfully opening to dukkha can lead us to faith because uh, we shift our view and let go of fighting against things and look for some other way, look for another way. Bhikkhu Bodhi says this, the confrontation with suffering, even at the level of mature reflection, is not sufficient to generate faith. For faith to arise, two conditions are required. The first is the awareness of suffering, which makes us recognize the need for a liberative path, a path of liberation. And the second is the encounter with a teaching that proclaims a liberative path, a path to freedom, a direct encounter there. So for, uh, for dukkha to lead to a kind of faith that is strong enough force to um, inspire a kind of leap into the unknown, we need to, uh, something to draw upon for um, some strength and courage and a sense of possibility, something that feels uh, trustworthy enough that we'll say, okay, let me check this out enough confidence to take the next step. There's a story from uh, the history of ancient India from a time not not so long after uh, when the Buddha was living. And it's the story of uh, King Ashoka. And he ruled, he ruled almost the whole Indian subcontinent from uh, around, I think from 268 to 232 BCE. So a couple of hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And uh, in his early years, he, is, he was, um, had a reputation for being uh, very greedy, filled with wanting mind, and uh, kind of bloodthirsty in his, um, the way he decided to, to let that, the way that manifested, <laughs> the way it led him. Uh, to actions. It's, uh, he was ruled by a, a somewhat insatiable desire to expand his kingdom. And he started many wars in pursuit of conquest. And, and he also was uh, known to be a very unhappy person at that time. Not happy. You know, the same movement of heart looking for happiness, but uh, rather misguided <laughs> terms of what might bring that but we see this in the world right We've seen this throughout history you know every all of everything underneath all of these all the wacko stuff we get up to all the is you know everything is born in the mind the the seeds of of war are right there in our own mind and heart <laughs> You know, things don't just happen. They're born in the mind. It's, and underneath it is a, our beings trying to find a way to be happy with no idea how to do that. So let me conquer everything I can see. <laughs> Maybe that'll do the trick. And so after one particularly bloody battle in an area called Kalinga, it said that he was finally, he was shocked by what he saw, the carnage, the death, the destruction that he saw there. 
finally touched by by this. And it's said that at that time he also saw someone wearing the robes like Bhante's or uh, Uvekas, someone wearing the robes of, of a Buddhist mendicant, an alms mendicant. And this being was uh, radiating this uh, serene, peaceful energy. And, uh, and he was very moved by this. And sometimes when people hear this story, they, they have this sense, well, the, what's, something's wrong. You know, this monk in this area was somehow untouched by, you know, so separated and, and closed down that wasn't even touched by uh, the, the surroundings and the situation there, this, this battlefield. But, um, but really the, the implication here is not that this monk was uh, unaffected by this or separated from life and no longer was felt anything, but rather that the monk embodied qualities of equanimity and wisdom and a deep seeing into the conditioned nature of, of things and seeing uh, this causal flow in the nature of actions born of intentions and, and how things flow out and the understanding how this, how this situation came about and was able to, to be there in a balanced and easeful way, in a serene way. And so Ashoka was really impressed by this monk, the timing there. And he, um, so, so we can see in this story, he, there was some opening to the truth of dukkha. He saw it on the level of the pain and suffering that he had caused and he saw it on the level of, you know, he wasn't happy. <laughs> There's unsatisfactory, this didn't do it. Right? They're really opening to like, these two levels of, of this truth. The truth of suffering and the truth of this uh, unsatisfactoriness. These actions didn't make him happier. Didn't find the happiness he sought through these things he got up to. And so he followed this monk and he, 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 he uh, persuaded him to give him teachings. And it completely transformed his life. He became... Uh, famous as a just and very kind and wise ruler. And he, uh, a lot of things, there's lists of things that he did. He, he had wells dug along the roadways and paths so there would be water for travelers. And he uh, planted trees and areas with medicinal plants um, and, and created hospitals. Um, he prohibited animal sacrifice, which was very, um, done a lot then. He protected a lot of animals and, um, practiced religious tolerance, all kinds of things. Uh, this total transformation of his, his very, the whole way he lived, everything and the way he uh, looked at life and how he, he uh, lived. And it all came from seeing this one being who radiated this sense of, of uh, serene contentment. And if you go to India, there are Ashoka pillars they date from that time, these stone pillars. And the, the top of them, um, uh, the lions, there are lions at the top facing the four directions, isn't it? I believe so. It's a symbol on the Indian flag. Some of you would know that. Um, and you see them there. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of incredible to see things that date from that long ago and, and point to this time and, and uh, that possibility.
And the monk wasn't trying to convert Ashoka. He was just walking along, being himself. He wasn't trying to persuade him or, or do anything. He was just being, just being. And there wasn't anything special except that there was this direct, profound expression of this non-ordinary kind of happiness, this deep contentment, this depth of ease, and, and this trust or confidence in this possibility, pointing to this possibility, this direct pointing to this sense that there might be somewhere uh, safe to place one's heart in that image, which I love. A really different kind of happiness than the uh, fleeting happiness from changing conditions that we might get once in a while. It's a, a quality of of wholeness, of peace that's woven into the very fabric of one's being. This is the possibility the Buddha was pointing to. And it's not only an expression of deep understanding, an expression of uh, deep peace, but it also radiates into the world like a gift in the way that I uh, was speaking about earlier of uh, seeing our practice, holding it as a gift. And the Buddha was always pointing to this kind of deep contentment, this kind of peace as possible for us, as our potential, no matter who we are, no matter what our circumstances. He said, if it wasn't possible to realize this, I wouldn't ask you to try. But since it is, I do ask you to try. And the power of mindfulness is that it can give us a direct taste of this possibility in any moment. In any moment, our view and our vision can shift. I think we all taste this at moments. It points towards a refuge that's there for us no matter what's going on. A kind of safe place to rest our heart. A kind of protection. I was on staff here a long time ago. And it was different then, but, but it was the same. And I worked on maintenance and our lair was down in the basement. And uh, on one of the, more than one place, but on one door that went out into a more public space, there was a, a little note and it said, mindfulness is the best protection. And I kind of wondered, I was really new to practice that when I first was here. Um, and I, I used to wonder what, what, do they, what does that mean? Mindfulness is this incredible protection for us. This incredible um, refuge. Points to a refuge. And through our practice, I think we start to really see that ultimately this simple, in a way very simple, but so profound um, mental quality that uh, is there for all of us. It can hold whatever arises from this place of, of ease and balance. And maybe this ultimate fulfillment of it is not here now, but the potential for it is here and now. And it's important to recognize the moment to moment truth of this, 
mean, even if just now sitting here all together, if we, if we ask in, in, bring into our the mind the question, is there awareness? Am I aware if you prefer? That's a good question to ask sometimes. You always get to say yes. Perhaps you weren't aware before you asked it. And maybe you won't be in the next moment, but then the asking of it, you can't say no, because that's not true. You might ask that at intervals through the day. You just have to, have to look there. There's an image, it's said that um, the mind, that, that our practice is like, um, that every moment of mindfulness, every moment of metta is like a drop in a, in a bucket or a, a, a large urn or some, some container that you can't see into, say a big ceramic urn or a bucket. And that, that our practice is, is putting those drops in. Or, I like, or you could see it as we're planting every moment, we're planting a seed. Maybe even visualize. Oh, here's another drop. Drop them in. And that's what we can do. That's our job, is to put those drops in. Whenever we come back, we're putting another drop in. We're filling up that bucket. And, and we can do that. And this is what matters. And, and we, we need to empower ourselves to uh, do this, to find uh, this confidence, this faith, that we, we just keep adding those drops. That's our job. That's the job of a meditator. And this is really what we can do because we can't force the mind to awaken or the heart to open. We, we can't will ourselves to freedom. We can't make it happen through, through an act of will. But we can add in those drops. And, and we don't know how full the bucket is and it's gonna look the same and feel the same in some ways. Whether there's just a little pool in the bottom or it's almost ready to overflow. Each drop goes in. And, and right in the doing of this, in the adding of each drop, we can find a place of rest and peace and contentment, right? Just in that. It's so sweet sometimes. I remember being touched by this quality of, of this kind of contentment in this way. Uh, when I first, first time I came to sit a three month retreat here and I was very, very new to practice. I'd only been meditating for a few months. And, uh, and I remember I was just sitting in the dining room and uh, I just felt, well, there were two things that I felt. One of them was this deep contentment. I was so content. And I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was not, from my inner perspective, I was, I was trying to do what I was being told to do, but I didn't know what was going on in many ways. But I was so happy, contented. I didn't need anything to be any different than the way it was. And, and part of it was, I just was so happy to be able to live that carefully. That's what I loved. I didn't feel like I'd ever lived with that much care. 
that contentment. And, and it's just in the moment of pure mindfulness, there's this fullness and completion, completeness, resting in the truth of things and releasing through that so much struggle. And we can taste that in moments. And even though we get caught in struggle again, we can come back there. And we start to learn that we can trust this quality of mindfulness, this awareness, more and more. And we see that ultimately it's not affected by what is known, that the awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness of fear is not afraid. It's not changed by these things. That awareness, we start to get tastes and moments that it can hold anything. And so many of you have been reporting this <laughs> in your experience. This is not far away from our experience. I hear this every time I meet with you. An experience where, oh, I, my awareness, the mindfulness was able to hold, hold this difficult situation. I was able to be there and rest there. And then our faith and confidence, our sadha, our trust, reflects uh, a trust in this, in the, in the, uh, this power of the mind. This thing that's so closer to us than the inside of our eyeball, eyelids. And so this radiant expression, this possibility embodied by the monk in the story of Ashoka, this is um, not only sort of uh, an image or a sense of, of the goal or the completion or the perfection of the path, but it's threaded throughout our practice, arising in a moment of pure mindfulness. And there's nothing missing. There's nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. So it's there in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end of our practice. It's a special kind of happiness that we can taste in moments and it's not born of an act of will or independent on the conditions in any way. It's independent of that. It's a kind of independence there. And it arises out of this radical intimacy with our life, with the truth of things, with nature. This whole practice is this deepening of this intimacy. And it can arise uh, at any time because it's born from, we could say it's born from the angle of our vision, from our relationship to life. And it's this basis for this uh, truly unconditional contentment, ease, happiness, peace, freedom, and independent freedom. And so this quality of uh, opening to dukkha and then this way that it can lead to confidence, faith, trust. Then it it leads us to uh, this kind of refuge, a deep refuge, right within the world of change, unpredictability, uncontrollability, right within that. That doesn't have to be other than that, because it never will be. That's the nature of things, right within it. We can find this uh, refuge. 
So these are some words from a, another Thai uh, teacher, a forest monk named Ajahn Fuang Jotiko. It's from a book called Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions of the conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away, and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. Just to get a taste for that just now. Thank you for listening this evening and and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.